If you're a guest tonight or haven't been for a while on Sunday night, what we're doing starting last Sunday for four Sundays, last Sunday tonight and the next two Sunday nights, is something totally different as we are going through some very practical material that you get a handout each week in kind of its raw form. And then by the end of the fourth week, two weeks from tonight, you will uh, will have available some little booklets that you can use. Uh, we've said before, discipling others is not a matter of having some kind of formal material. This is just something that if it can help you, fine. If you want to use part of it, fine. If you want to change it around, don't change the meaning, but change it around, that's fine. And if you want to use it just like it is, that's fine. It's a simply a tool, but I think in doing this, we're going to learn some things about discipleship and how important it is. Tonight and probably the uh, next two weeks, I want to start our time together by just reading a, a little book. Now, this is the kind of book you like because you can read it fast, okay? And you say, I don't ever read. Well, you can read this book, all right? Look at it. It's little. I mean, it's it's puny. It's, it's so little. It's kind of, you feel sorry for it. It's so little. And so uh, it's only got a hunt, little over 100 pages in it, fairly large print. But this is, um, and I, I think most of our elders have read this and we've talked about it a lot. It's, it's a fairly new book. It's, called, it's simply called, it's not got a real creative title, but I don't really care about creative titles. It's just called Discipling. And um, it's uh, excellent. And I want to just read a couple of three paragraphs each night out of this to kind of set up what we're going to talk about. It's not really so much a message as a teaching of simply an equipping of you to disciple others. Why disciple? But the Christian life is also the discipling life. Disciples disciple. We follow the one who calls people to follow by calling people to follow. Why do we do this? Well, for the sake of love and obedience. First of all, love. The motive for discipling others begins in the love of God and nothing else. Nothing less. He has loved us in Christ... And so we love Him. And we do this in part by loving those He has placed around us. When a lawyer asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is, Jesus begins by answering, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12:30. What God wants most of all is for all of you to love Him. All, your ambi- all of you being all, all of your individual life. All of your ambitions and motives, your desires and hopes, your thinking and reasoning, your strength and your energy, all this informed and purified and disciplined by His Word. In fact, the comprehensiveness of your devotion to God will be demonstrated by your love for those made in God's image. Let me say that again. The comprehensiveness of your devotion to God will be demonstrated by your love for those made in God's image. The lawyer may have asked for one command, but he got two. The second, said Jesus, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. To omit, to omit the second command is to miss the first. Love for God is fundamental to love for neighbor. And love for God must express itself in love for neighbor. It completes the duty of love. God's love for us starts a chain reaction. He loves us. Then we love Him. Then we love others. 
John captures all this when he says in 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Any claim to love for God that does not show itself in a love for neighbor is a love of a false god, little g, another form of idolatry. In these verses, Jesus and John reconnect some of the links broken at the fall. So why disciple for love? Second, for obedience. But tied to our love is our obedience. Jesus taught, if you love me, keep my commandments. And there are multiple verses where he says that. And what has he commanded? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Part of our obedience is leading others to obedience. The motives are specifically love and flowing out of that love, obedience. That's why we disciple, not Primarily our love for others, but primarily our love for Jesus, which results in a love for others. Well, let me spend just a moment reviewing and giving a little more than I gave last week on lesson one. Lesson one in this discipleship basics was the purpose and problem of all mankind. And that's what we looked at last week. And, and we saw God's purpose in creating mankind was this. God created us for His glory. And we spent a lot of time looking at what that word glory means when it talks about the glory of God. To put it in another way, we were created for the distinct purpose of glorifying God. That means we were created to... Because, you see, we throw that phrase around, we were created to glorify God, but what exactly does that mean? How do you know if you're doing it? How do you know if you're doing it the wrong way? What does it mean to glorify God? I think the, the, best, the, the, the best way to put it is the way the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. And here's what he said. With all boldness, as always, so now also, that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. I think that is the perfect description, of script, uh, perfect description in Scripture of what it means to glorify God. It means that God is magnified in my body. That is, everything my body does. It's speaking, it's thinking, it's all the whole, the whole process that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. It's interesting, that word magnified means to be shown as great, to be declared as exceedingly great, that through my life, people who are around me very long will know that God is exceedingly great. That, that's what Paul meant. It's translated that God would be highly honored in my body in the Christian Standard Bible. It's translated exalted in the New International Version. But I like, I like the one I read earlier that... Christ be magnified in my body. Let's think about that a minute. Think about the difference between a microscope and a telescope. Because I think this will open something up to you. A microscope, 
allows us to see something that's very small because it's made bigger than it is. A germ. Okay? You can see through that. Some kind of little squiggly things that move around and so forth. That's a a microscope. A telescope allows us to more clearly see something huge that's far away. Our lives are to be a telescope that takes the glorious God who seems, seems far away for most people and to bring him near so that all can see what he is really like. And what is the tool? What is the, what is the telescope that brings him near? It's our lives that Christ would be magnified, that he would be seen, that he would be made known through our very lives. And you see, here's the way it works. Here's why God says that, 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 that our purpose in life, that the reason we were created is to, is to glorify him. It's when, when others see our holy God magnified. They, they, how do they know he's, he's holy? It's because when the world sees how we hate sin, when we despise sin, not sinners, but sin, when, we, when the world sees our love for one another. Jesus even said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all will know that you're my disciples, as you love one another. When the world sees our love for the lost and hurting, that's since we know God and proclaim Him, that must be that God has compassion for the lost and the hurting. And God is magnified. Now, we could say the same thing about when the world sees our trust, in times when we cannot see, when the world sees our courage, when we're going through things that are tough and through trials that hurt and through pain, our, when, they, when the world sees how we forgive those who have wronged us, what have we done? We have taken a God that seems far away to the world and we've brought him down and we have telescoped him, so to speak, that now he looks big like he is and they see that in our lives. One of my favorite quotes, it fits in the top ten, Of all the quotes I've ever read outside of Scripture, one of my favorite is this quote by Adrian Rogers. He said, we have no right to expect to be believed as long as we can be explained. Now think on that a minute. That's really good. We have no right to expect to be believed as long as we can be explained. What did he mean by that? He's saying that when we live in such a way that the world cannot explain it. How could you love somebody that's treated you that way? How could you forgive someone who has wronged you so much? How could you have joy in the midst of the horrible trial and the pain that you're going through? How could you keep on going when everything is saying quit? The world looks at that and the world sees just practical things. How we give beyond what the world would think we could afford. How... The world looks at that and says, I I don't understand that. There's something going on here. And they listen when we speak. We have no right to expect to be believed as long as we can be explained. Now, last week we looked at what went wrong. That's why God created man was to glorify him, to magnify him. What went wrong? Well, we saw last week. First of all, what it means to be created in God's image. You need to understand that before you see what we lost. And we looked at the three-part nature of man. 
That man is spirit. That's the part of us that allows us to know and have communion with God. We, God, we are soul, our personality, our mind, our will, our emotions. And we are housed in a body, kind of like our earth suit. If you go to the moon, you have to put on a moon suit to adapt to its atmosphere and so forth. And our body allows us to relate to the environment that God has made for us. And then we looked, after we saw how God created man last week, then we looked what went wrong. Sin came into the world. And we looked at the devastating consequences of sin. The soul of man died immediately to God when sin came into the world so that man could no longer walk in fellowship with God. Man was separated from God. Man, and I'm using that in the generic sense of mankind, man could know about God, but did not know God and, and cannot know God in the sense of a relationship, an intimacy with him. I think I read something, a guy gave, gave his testimony, and he was comparing himself to the friend who led him to Christ. And he says, he said, I saw, here's what, here's what drew him to the Lord. It was the Lord drawing him, but here's what the Lord used. He said, I knew about the God that my friend knew. He knew the God that I only knew about. And so... The problem is, is that because of sin, we can't really, on our own, we can't know God in the sense of relationship, of an intimacy with Him. Not only was the soul that it died to God, the soul, the, I mean, the spirit died to God, the soul was damaged with the fall, with sin coming into the world. The mind, it speaks in Ephesians 3.18, the mind was darkened. Reasoning was distorted. The, the emotions that respond to the mind, well, the emotions got, to use a really technical term that you might, I might have to explain to you, the emotions got messed up, okay? They got messed up. And the emotions began to believe that which contradicted the truth, which led to damaged, warped emotions that pull us away from the truth and lead us into doubt and confusion and depression. The will gets its input from the mind and emotions. And so if the mind is darkened and the emotions are warped, then, the, then, when, then what's going to happen with the will, with the decisions? Bad decisions are made. And so that's the mess we're in. Sin came into the world. The body began to die. So you got the spirit died to God immediately when sin came into the world. The soul was damaged. The body began to die and became susceptible to weakness and to disease and to aging. A power called sin moved into man's body. This power of sin, sometimes called the law of sin, gives Satan inroad into our, our minds to, to tempt us and pull us away from God and His will. And then we saw that all of these things that happened when sin came into the world were passed on to every natural-born descendant of Adam. And they were passed on to Adam's children. And it says, Adam brought forth children after his own image, which is the image of God twisted by sin. And then Adam's son gave to Adam's grandson, same effects, spirit, soul, body, messed up by sin. All the way down to it gets to your grandpa and then your daddy and then you, all of us, all of these consequences of sin. Now, let's move to tonight's lesson, to lesson two. And what we're going to talk about tonight is God's solution. I was glad to get last week over with. 
God's solution to man's problem. Uh, first of all, let me state unequivocally that there is no human solution to man's problem. There is none. That's why, oh, that's why when we go to, and here's a plug for Christian counselors. And I'm not, you know, there's a lot of counselors out there that call themselves counselors, but they use the world's counseling and they themselves say they believe in Christ, so they call themselves a Christian counselor. I'm talking about a person who gives Christian counsel, not just a counselor who happens to be a Christian. Listen, when people who, and I'm not talking about when there's medical problems and all that, physical problems. I'm talking about when we try to solve these problems that can only be solved God's way. And um, we are glad to recommend to you Christian counselors. We have at least a couple here in the church that are, uh, that's their vocation, and they both uh, send people to them regularly. When there's no human solution. There is no human solution to the sin problem. And in Genesis 3-7, we see the sad way that Adam and Eve tried to cover the shame of their sin. Look, look in Genesis 3-7. It's there in your notes. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin, cover, loin coverings. This attempt... To cover themselves represents, and it's a, it's a tremendous, accurate picture of mankind's futile attempt to remedy sin's devastation by human works. All human works, that is what all man's religions is based upon, all human works-based religion is nothing more than fig leaves. What an illustration that is that God gave us right there in the early chapters of Genesis. You know, in one sense... I remember reading this one time, and I thought, uh, that's a little oversimplifying it. And the more I thought about it, the statement I'm about to make you, I think, is 100% accurate. In one sense, there's only two religions in the world. So, oh, no, I know of a lot more than that. No, it's just two. There's only two. There's Christianity, which says that we are made right with the Holy God by grace through faith, in Christ alone, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's one religion. The other religion is religion of human works. And there's lots of different varieties of that second one. Islam being the most um, well-known and having the most people involved. But every other religion is a religion of human works. And what do we call religions of human works? Fig leaf religions. Trying in our own works... To cover our shame. And yet the fig leaves had no effect with God. So what can be done about this problem? Job put it this way in Job 25, 4. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? That is, born with that Adamic nature, with all the curse of sin upon us. And God's answer comes echoing down from heaven only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, in this lesson, we're going to learn two very important truths, spending about 80% of our time on the first one, and that's not because it's, well, it may be more important, but they're all important. And we're going to summarize God's solution to man's greatest problem, which is sin. First of all is the word. I'm going to lay some big words on you, but I'm going to explain them. 
And these are biblical words. They're found right in the Bible, so you need to learn them. Don't get upset when somebody uses biblical words. Get upset when people use big, long, uh, I mean, when people use big words. If they're biblical, you need to learn them. If they're just impressing you with their, um, how smart they are, um, you, you might want to sort of talk to them um, and tell them to get over themselves. Uh, justification. That's, a, that's one of the most important words to understand God's solution to man's problem. Uh, unless, unless, listen carefully, this thing called justification, it's not that it's so difficult to, to, to mentally comprehend, but it's so difficult for people to accept that unless, now listen carefully, unless God opens a person's eyes and enables them to put their faith in Christ and to trust in Him, I, I don't believe anybody ever gets justification. It's, it's, it's not that it's so complicated. The reason they don't get it is because it's so simple. So let's jump right in. And I'm, I'm going to share these truths with you, but I think God has to supernaturally reveal this. Martin Luther understood that. I've always loved this quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer. <laughs> I can relate to him. He says, I have preached justification by faith so often, I feel sometimes that you are so slow to receive, receive it that I could almost take the Bible and bang it about your heads. Uh, <laughs> so I may come down and try that. You know, the front rows may be dangerous. Justification! It's, you know, um, I promise I won't do that. Um, now, I, I, when you disciple someone, the whole purpose of this is not just that you get this, but that you can pass these things on. When you disciple... you. You pray that God would open their eyes that they could understand what justification is. Because this, this is the key to knowing Christ. This is the key to overcoming the devastating effects of sin coming into the world. Now, you can notice in your notes the word justify or justification is used over 60 times in Scripture. Uh, and if you look there, I, I, this is not so you can impress people by knowing Greek words. But I, I just wanted you to look at, the, at this, these words. You can tell the word translated justification, dikaiosis, is very similar to the word for righteousness, dikaios. And you can say, okay, I don't know any Greek whatsoever, but I can tell those two words must be kind of a lot alike. They have different endings on them, but they're the same root. Well, let's look at the definition of justification. And then I want to say a few more things about it than are in your notes. To be justified is to be, here's key, to be declared by God to be righteous. That word righteous means in right standing before God. Justification is to be declared by God to be righteous before Him. Now, the, the word declared is used in sort of a judicial sense. If, for instance, if a judge declares a defendant guilty, then he's guilty. If a judge declares the defendant as, as, as the person on trial, as he, if he declares them as innocent, then they are declared innocent. And if, when the just judge of the universe, who makes no mistakes, declares you righteous, you're righteous. If he declares you not righteous, you're not righteous, no matter what you may feel or what facts you may know. Now, at first glance, that ought to cause us to have a dilemma, and I'll tell you why. How could God, whose primary whose primary attribute is holiness, it's an attribute really of all of his attributes, when God is, is holy, how could a holy God declare a sinner 
to be righteous before God, how could God do that without Him ceasing to be just and righteous in Himself? I mean, isn't it a principle that sin must be paid for? It certainly is. So how could God just declare someone to be righteous, to be in right standing with Him? Well, that apparent dilemma is solved in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is 101 stuff. This is real basic, but some people have never gotten the basics. And remember, you're discipling people. You're going to be asked to disciple your children and others who may not know anything about these words like justification. Listen, if, if you're just talking with people at your work, even those who are members of Christian churches, most people have fig leaf religion. Are you not aware of that? Most people have fig leaf religion. They're really trusting in their own works and their own goodness. And they know they're good and their works are acceptable because of how they compare with other people. So we're all graded on the curve in this false view. And so how, do you, how are you doing compared to others? Now, because Jesus shed his blood on the cross and paid the sin debt that we owed, not only can we be righteous before God, but God can be righteous in making us righteous. Let, let, let me give you a little closer look at that. Um, because Jesus shed his blood on our behalf, God is not unrighteous when he simply makes a declaration that we've been, we've been declared righteous. This is called, now here's some really big words, the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal is from penalty. And so he, he's, 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 he says that the penal substitution, the penalty has been paid. Uh, the word substitutionary means that a substitute paid the penalty that we deserved. And atonement means to appease or pay a satisfactory payment to an offended party. That's what atonement means. And so the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ means that he took the penalty for our sins as our substitute and paid that penalty that we deserved so that we, our sin might be atoned, that the payment, a satisfactory payment was made. Listen to how it's described in Romans 3, 24 through 26. Being justified. Now, what is justified? Being declared righteous by God through faith. Being justified is a gift. By, I mean, if God just declares you just, it has to be a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is, and we'll talk about that next week, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And we'll explain that big word in a moment. In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That last statement is absolutely astounding. God has done something amazing. He has worked things out so that he could continue to be just, but he is also the justifier, the one who declares righteousness, those who put their faith in Christ. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
I hope that's sinking in because that's just shouting territory. That's like, hallelujah. That's what has happened because of the cross. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, it is now possible for God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Whew, that makes me happy. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see what God did to make it possible for us to become righteous before Him, in right standing before Him, for us to be declared just. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, His Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I think, notice my language here, I don't think this is one of, I think this is the most important verse in all the 66 books of the Bible. That's a personal opinion, but I think it's pretty accurate or I'd have another opinion. This is, this, is, this summarizes the gospel more than any other verse, and it's so short. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, what was the price that was paid for our justification. Well, it was His blood. His blood, when, when the Bible talks about the blood of Jesus, and I, I've talked about this many times before, but let me remind you of it. Uh, some people who profess Christ treat the blood of Jesus like a magic something or other. You know, they plead the blood over this and plead the blood over that. And, and it's really, it's really, I understand what that phrase means to plead the blood of Jesus. It means that's our only hope was his death for us. But, but blood in the Bible speaks of poured out life. Jesus gave his life for us. He poured out his life blood for us. It's all based on Leviticus 17:11, And it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. In other words, it's poured out life. That's the, 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 the wages of sin is death. The having life poured out and the life is in the blood. And so poured out blood is picturing and, and is, is communicating poured out life. Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, justified by his blood. Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, let's look at that word propitiation. And that, I think it's used four times. I know it's three times and maybe four times in the New Testament. Propitiation is very, very similar. It's not quite a synonym, but it's very similar to atonement. Atonement and propitiation are very similar. The word propitiation means to provide a satisfactory payment. Jesus' blood was a satisfying payment to the Father for our sins. The shed blood made it possible for God to forgive us and declare us righteous, and God still be holy, just, and righteous. That's what it means when it says He was, he is, was, was just and the justifier. Why? Because of the blood of Christ, the poured out life of Jesus, poured out for us. Well, how is this justification obtained? Romans 3.28 For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Romans 4.5 But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith 
is credited as righteousness. Notice, is credited. I, that's, I will talk about that in a moment. That's a great phrase. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our trainer, our, our, our one who brings us to be taught. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So according to Romans 3.28, Romans 4.5, Romans 5.1, and Galatians 3.24, we are justified by faith. By faith. Now, the word faith is, uh, as it's used in these verses, means that we turn from our fig leaves. All right? We quit trusting in fig leaves to make us acceptable before God. We recognize that the fig leaves just won't do it. And the blood has to be shed. And so we, we refuse to trust in fig leaves. And we recognize that every false hope for righteousness we turn away from, being good, being better than the average, grading pretty well on the curve when compared to others, through going through a ritual like being baptized or being dunked or sprinkled or whatever it may be, and we put our, it means then to having rejected everything else, we step out in total trust and reliance on Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf. And, and then giving evidence that God accepted that, he was raised from the dead. Now, it's, it's much more than just intellectual ascent. It's not, you know, you say, well, well I believe Jesus Christ died for, for sin. So I'm a Christian. No, no, no. Wait. This depends on what you mean by believe. All right? If all you mean by that is I have accepted certain facts, I've accepted these as a fact, just like I accept the fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and just like I accepted the, accept the fact that Julius Caesar was killed by, you know, the people that killed him, you know, you two Brutus and all that stuff, and, and, and I get, you know, I, I, that, that's a historical fact. I believe all that, so, so I'm saved. No, it's faith more than that. It, it, that's a part of it. You have to believe the facts as they are presented in Scripture. But faith is more than that. Faith is when I am persuaded, not that I just give mental assent, but I am persuaded that this is not only true, but is absolutely essential. And then when I step out acting like it's true and I am trusting personally, putting my trust. And we're going to give you some more analogies of what that means in just a moment. You know, we... What we call faith is not really faith in the Bible sense so often. I, I, I tried not in this to have a lot of quotes from man, but just quotes from Scripture. But I couldn't leave this one out when it comes to faith. It's from A.W. Tozier. Listen to this. He says, the faith of Paul and Luther was a revolutionary thing. It, it upset the whole life of the individual and made him into a new person altogether. It laid hold on the life and brought it under obedience to Christ. It took up the cross and followed along after Jesus with no intention of going back. It said goodbye to its old friends as certainly as Elijah when he stepped into the fiery chariot and went away in the whirlwind. It had a finality about it. It snapped shut on a man's heart like a trap. It captured the man and made him from that moment forward a happy love servant of his Lord. Boy, that's a good quote. And that's the kind of faith that saves, not like, yep, makes sense to me. I think I accept that. 
oh, good, you've gotten the first step, but that's not saving faith. It's a time when you then step out in trust, persuaded that this is true, and as we're going to see, then deposit ourselves into his hands and trust in him alone. Now, let's answer a question. According to Romans 6, 17 and 18, what is the effect of true saving faith? We've heard what Tozier said. Let's see what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says. And they agree, by the way. Romans six seventeen and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, watch carefully. We are now freed. If you've been declared righteous by Christ, you've been justified by Him. We are now freed from sin in the sense that we're no longer a slave of sin. You see, lost people say, lost people sin because that's what lost people do. They're, they're, they're slaves to sin. Or they might, you know, I've often thought it was funny of people who don't even know Christ and don't profess Christ will brag about some accomplishment related to sin in their, sin in their life, how they put it aside. And, and they'll talk about how they quit drinking on their own. You know, I just made up my mind. I'm not going to drink any more booze. I got it all, poured it down in, in the drain and, and uh, threw the bottles away. And I hadn't took a, I've not taken a drink since. <laughs> okay, they're still a slave to sin. It just switched. Now they're full of pride. Uh, that's the truth. They're, they're full of pride for all of their good sense that, and their willpower that nothing has victory over. Mwah. I can take care of anything. Uh, so it's pride. And, and what happens is I used to have a bent hubcap on an old 73 Chevrolet Caprice. And um, that was a long time ago. And, and the hubcap was, it was warped. And I had a slow leak, and I had to keep getting flat and put the thing. And every time I tried to put that thing on, I'd use my my heel of my hand, and it finally, it all, I think it turned black and blue. If I remember, I kept hitting that thing because it was warped. And I'd put the hubcap in over here, and what would happen? It pops out over here. Uh, so you know, I'd try to hold that one, and I'd hit that one, and it'd pop that one out. And then I'd, I'd pop it again. I'd pop them both at one time, and it'd pop out at the top. Uh, that's the way sin is. When a person doesn't know Christ, you, you may have some kind of a seeming victory over here, but it just pops out somewhere else, and you become prideful over what you think you've overcome here. There, there is, this, there, there is this, this impossibility to overcome sin because we're slave to sin. And, and that, that's, that's a part of what it means to be lost. We are compelled to, to, um, to sin. That, that, that's just... What it means to be lost and fallen. And so, once we're saved, when we become a Christian, you know what? <laughs> Listen carefully. Everybody's a slave. You know that? Everybody in this room is a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus Christ. But you're, you are a slave. And a slave to Christ means that we are compelled to a lifetime of obedience. Oh, we sure sin. But we can't continue in that. We have to deal with that. We have to confess the sin. We're slaves of Him. Now, now, notice the part of man. Remember, our soul is made up of our mind, our emotions, and our will. 
In Romans 6:17, look at the, part, the, the parts of mankind's soul that's involved in saving faith. Now look at it again. It's there in your notes, in verses 17 and 18. Notice, first of all, it affects the will. He says, you became obedient. See that in verse 17? It affects the emotions. He said, you became obedient from the heart. And it affects the mind to that form of teaching. And so, true salvation involves the whole soul, the mind, the emotions, and the will. And, and then there is something else that I think is best described in 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him until that day. Now, let me explain that to you. This is really good on helping you understand what salvation really is and, and what the results of being justified really are. According to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, this faith that saves, this faith involves a commitment of our life to Christ. Now, now, the word translated commitment doesn't mean I'm going to grip my teeth and say I'm going to try harder to do better. That's not the kind of commitment it's talking about. It's talking about the kind of commitment when you take your check to the bank or have it sent, however you do, that when it's sent there or when you take your check and deposit it, that that money is going to be there when you need it. You have committed it to the bank. Does that make sense? You've entrusted it to the bank. Now, Banks are not always trustworthy. But when you commit your soul, your eternity to the Lord, when you put it into His hands, He is trustworthy. And you're saying, Lord, I, I'm entrusting my eternity to You. I am trusting only in You. I commit myself unto You. Look, look at that verse again, Second Timothy 1.12. He says, I know whom I have believed and persuaded that He is able to keep that is, to keep safe what I have committed, I have placed in His hands until that day. Lord, I am trusting in You alone to save me, not in my good works. And I am committing that trust. I am committing my life into Your hand. W.A. Criswell was one of my favorite preachers. He died probably in the 1990s, I think. He was the pastor for 50 years. I only got 20 more to go to match him. <laughs> for 50 years, he was the pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas. And, and here was his instructions for when he died. And I'm, I didn't see this, but I'm pretty sure he, it was done just like he said. He was a pretty imposing character. And uh, he said, I want you to lay me. And he, had a, he was real eloquent, as the old preachers of old tended to be, very eloquent with his words. He said, I want you to lay me out in that coffin. And he said, I want it open at the funeral. And he said, I want a Bible on my chest. Open to Second Timothy, one twelve, and he said, "I want you to take my bony dead finger, and I want you to pull one out from all the others, and I want it placed on that Bible, on Second Timothy one twelve. I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that, to keep what I have committed unto him until that day." Wow, you know that may sound a little morbid to you, but I think it's pretty fantastic. Uh, when I die, here's what I want you to do. With my old cold, dead body, I want you to take this bony, dead finger. And, well, I don't really care if you do that, but I want you to remember that. That's the trust that I have and what you should have in Him. When our faith is placed in Christ alone, our sins are paid for by His shed blood on the cross, 
And he gives us his righteousness, his right standing with God. We stand in the very righteousness of Christ. I'm getting goosebumps. Romans 5, 17 through 19, you see a contrast between Adam and Jesus. To just to illustrate this point, Romans 5, 17 through 19 says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, that is Adam, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, notice the gift of righteousness, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, that is Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification by life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Um, Look, look at the, the, the contrast that are in, in your notes. Romans 5.17, in Adam, death reigned. In Jesus, there is the gift of righteousness. <laughs> in Adam, judgment came, resulting in condemnation. The free gift came, resulting in justification of life with Jesus. In Adam, Romans 5.19, many were made sinners. In Jesus, many will be made righteous. In him. Now, we deal with the counterfeits of justification. Human religion. We've already talked about that. All human religions are false and satanic. That's not being arrogant. That's not saying we ought to persecute them. That's not saying we don't believe in religious freedom. It's simply saying that there's an exclusivity about Christ. There's no way to be saved apart from Christ and his penal substitutionary atonement on our behalf. And then... What does it say about self-righteousness? Anything, anybody that is depending anything upon themselves. And there are a lot of people who say, well, I believe it's through Jesus and the cross plus our works. Listen, it's all or none, folks. It's either, it's either through Christ's shed blood or it's in our works. And if it's our works, we always come up short. Um, so, here's the summary. Jesus took our sin on the cross, paid the satisfactory price, His blood. And when we place our faith in Him, His righteousness is credited. Some translations use the word imputed. means to put on our account. His righteousness is put on our account so that God can now judicially, forensically sometimes it's called, He can judicially declare us as righteous before Him because Christ's righteousness, an alien righteousness, as some theologians call it, one outside ourselves, because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been put on our account. Romans 4, 22 through 24. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not only for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited or imputed as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Well, very quickly, and this one is much shorter, but no less important. When it comes to God's solution for the problem of sin, uh, for man's greatest problem, is not only justification, but secondly, our union with Christ. At the moment of salvation, we're not only justified, declared righteous before a holy God because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us, put on our account, 
But at the moment of salvation, not only are we justified, we are also placed in union with Christ. That's sometimes called being identified with Christ or baptized into Christ. It's not talking about water baptism like in the thing behind me here. This is talking about when the Holy Spirit unites us, puts us in union with Christ. Now, this concept of our union with Christ is foreign to most Christians. I never even heard of this until I was in my 20s. Uh, and because of that, and I was saved as a child, and I never even heard of this. And when I did, boy, you talk about opening things up. This opened it up. One very prominent theologian said this. He said that in his opinion, this doctrine of our union with Christ is the most important and least understood of all the doctrines related to salvation. I wouldn't argue with him on that. Here's how it's described in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. For by the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. If you look at the context, it's talking about the body of Christ. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now, say in the notes there from the context, the one body is the body of Christ. The word baptized means to immerse into, to, to immerse. When you immerse the clothes into a washing machine that's full of water, then they are in the water. And even so, we've been baptized into, immersed into Christ. And now we are considered in Christ. Over 160 times in the New Testament, Christians are described as being in Christ. We've been baptized in, immersed into Christ. Now, this doctrine of the union, our union with Christ is not some floating out there, kind of just head thing that's not really real. It's very practical. It's one of the keys to the victorious Christian life. So what does being in union with Christ mean? Well, let's look very quickly. We're in union with Him, or we're identified with Christ in His death. His death has now become our death. Do you know that as God sees things, which, by the way, as God sees things, that's the way they are? <laughs> I always get irritated when people say, well, that's just how God sees it. <laughs> if that's how God sees it, that's how it is, all right? Um, we're in union with and identified with, with Christ in His death. Galatians 2.20. Oh, this is a good verse. It's, it's second to that other verse in Galatians, in, in 2 Corinthians 5 that I meant, meant 5.20. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 6.6, 6, for we know that our old self, that old us in Adam, with a dead spirit and a messed up soul and a dying body, we know that our old self has now been crucified with him in order to, that sin's dominion over the body, this sin nature, this power of sin that had, had us in slavery. That's what dominion over us means. That we were enslaved to this power called sin, that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. He didn't say that sin was abolished, but it's dominion. It's, 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 it's enslaving of us has now been abolished. So that we are no longer, what? Enslaved to sin. There's no such thing as a Christian who's enslaved to sin. If you're enslaved to sin, you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean you don't struggle with it. But there's a difference between struggling with and being a slave to. We're in union with or identified with Christ in His life. Not only His death, but in His life. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. 
In fact, another name for his life is eternal life. Listen, eternal life in the Bible, when, when this discovery came to me and I, uh, somebody taught it to me, and I was like, I, I was real skeptical, and I got to reading all the places it was used, and this is true. Eternal life is not living forever. I mean, that's true. Those in Christ live and never die, but that's not what eternal life means. Eternal life is a person. Boy, when that comes when that comes clear to you, it's kind of like, whoa, eternal life is a person. Jesus is eternal life. Uh, this one of many verses, 1 John 5, 20. And we are in Him, Jesus, who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Uh, he, he is eternal life. That's why we say the moment you receive Christ, you have eternal life. Why? Because Christ is in you and you're in Christ. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit places us in union with Christ. This act of putting us in union with Christ is also called baptizing us into Christ or identifying us with Christ. The old person who was in Adam is now crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. The power called sin that dwells in us that held the old us in Adam in slavery to sin. We were slaves to sin. Now the old us in Adam, the one that was enslaved, has been crucified with Christ, and we've been set free from the power of sin as far as its control. We still struggle with it. We're still tempted to sin, but now we are in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. And not only that, we're going to see in Lesson 4 that He's given the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we have the power to walk in victory over sin. Romans 6, 7, he who has died, that is died with Christ, is freed from sin. The result of no longer being enslaved to sin is given in verses 11 through 14, and I want to close with these. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider means to count something as true by faith because God says it. In other words, I, I, I say, Lord, I don't feel dead to sin. It seems pretty strong. It's kind of alive. But it didn't say sin died. It, it just says, I died to sin. And, and the one it had authority over, that it enslaved, has been crucified with Christ. And I now have power over this sin, this power of sin, this law of sin within me. And he says, therefore, do not let. In other words, now you've got a decision to make. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That you obey its lust and do not go on presenting your members of your body. That's like your hands, your feet, your mind, your mouth, all of that. Do not, in your eyes especially, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God. And those as those alive from the dead and your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And because we are in Christ, we have a new identity. And in Lesson 3, next week, we talk about our new identity in Christ. Who are you now? You're a new person. And the problem with a lot of people is they're still living like a person they no longer are. The old one that was dead, that's not who you are. You've been made a new person with a new identity. And we'll see that identity next week.